Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Let me be honest here, I did not want to make this episode. At all. I kind of have to, in a way. Because events have happened that, um... They've made me worried. They've made me think a lot, and analyze situations that have been happening lately, and uh, it's a tough, tough time in the eastern border right now. And I don't even mean it in a personal sense. I mean, I'm still at the farm, because trying to find an apartment where to live in this COVID era is just weird. But hey, well, <laughs> I'm just gonna have to wait at the farm until the people actually want to rent stuff again. If you have an apartment in another EU country, I don't really expect to move elsewhere. But if, if you have a place to rent in the EU country someplace, hey, let me know. Might as well look at all the offers. Why not? The COVID restrictions are going to go down soon enough here as we're all getting vaccinated. So it should be okay. And I don't mind spending a year or so or, or in another country again, especially after what I'm going to be talking about in this episode. Now, I might sound a bit confused it's because I'm overworked and stressed out, but well, that's kind of life in this new era, I suppose. And this is going to be a meandering, weird episode more dabbling into the political philosophy side, I suppose. We're going to look at um, quite a bit of history and um, some weird recent events. Also included in this fact is that I made a poll on Facebook and on Twitter about what my next episode would be. But due to how politics just happened, I had to throw it out of the window. It's going to make it in the following episodes, but... At the given moment, I have to make this episode as it is right now, because it's just way too darn important. And, well, I'll be including some of the fun stories that I've heard, too, to lighten the mood a bit, but, um... Well, by the title of this episode, you probably understand that uh, this isn't of the lightest topics that I could have chosen and, and could make episodes about. As we're talking about war here... First of all, I want to tell you that if something actually happens, which I give about 25 to 30% chance of happening, 
which is still way, way more than I would feel comfortable with. I'm going to go there again, because obviously I will, unless I'll be in, in the process of moving somewhere else, but um kind of have to prepare myself to do some more reporting. Because obviously what we're talking here about is um, the massive escalation of activities on the Russian and Ukrainian border, both in Donbass area and in Crimea, where both the Ukrainian side and the Russian side have been amassing forces at these bordering places, and both sides are blaming each other for basically escalating all of this, and, well, Russian propaganda, what they mistakenly call journalism, is full with stories of Ukrainian violence and whatnot. Yeah, there's also been a story about how evil Ukrainians, uh, 30 miles from the border point, about 40 kilometers from there, sent a specific drone to kill a boy in the Donbass region. Although the boy himself apparently blew up due to, well, handling a landmine, because, hey... Although landmines are inhuman and terrible things, and they're mostly banned by Geneva Convention, I think, they're still widely used there. But that's another one of those, you know, studies about violence in preparation for war. And Ukrainian side has reported that recently, in 26th of March, four Ukrainian soldiers died from, well, mortar attacks from the Donbass side. So both of the sides are just yelling at each other. And um, NATO command here in Europe has declared that they have these crisis levels and the level of preparedness, and they've shifted the possibility of a war in Ukraine, between Ukraine and Russia, from this crisis status of probable to potentially unavoidable, which is the highest rank of military preparedness. So in this episode, we'll take a look at what... Each side has done. Why is this going on? What's happening? We'll look into some interesting events that are kind of tying into this and some things that just make me meander about the politics of all of this and how this whole spectacle could go down and why I do believe that my percentage estimates are correct. At any rate, we'll see at the end of April, beginning of May. Let's look at how Putin basically has been dealing with his various wars throughout his time as the supreme leader of Russia. First off, I want to start with um, a little-known institution, in the West at least, that is called the Committee of National Safety of Russia. That's a kind of a clique, cabal, something like that, that actually rules over Russia. I mean, you could think that Putin does everything alone, but Oh, no, 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 no. Every power, every government has to have their basis and legitimacy somewhere. And, well, if you listen to my show long enough, you probably know that such kleptocratic authoritarian regimes don't really have much legitimacy from its people. Well, they sort of have to pretend that they do, because those are the optics of everything that's happening there. But, uh, well, to those of you that have maybe listened to Dan Carlin's uh, episodes about the supernova in the East, which I have been re-listening since I, well, literally sit in a shit pile and sling bull every day for five hours, well, he speaks about Japan and their form of government, at least in the early episodes, because I've been re-listening to most of his stuff lately, 
and he speaks about how Japan was run in the interwar period, and that's government by assassination, how he and other people call it, and the limited power of the emperor there, even though emperor is declared a god. Well, in Russia, it's a bit different. See, it still takes kind of the notion of the fact that, you know, you have to pretend, you have to have good optics to the Western part, and you have to have some results, and it's kind of nice if the population actually supports you, but at the same time, Putin's main base of power are the so-called Shilaviki, which are the power structures, the internal security forces and everything, and the FSB, and the army. Those people who can take their police batons and beat up protesters, after all. And among all the committees and structures that the Russian government has, which is the Gosduma, their parliament, uh, kind of the lower house of the parliament, then there's the upper house, which is the Council of the Federation, where specifically uh, people appointed by Putin go, or the governors of various provinces. In Russia, I, I can generalize by calling them provinces, because... Their federal system, unlike many other countries where, say, in Germany or in the United States, you'd have, you know, states or Bundesrepubliks in Germany. In Russia, it's a bit different because some of the federal subjects are actual separate republics, more state-like, even though it's a lot more centralized. Some of them are oblasts, which are districts like Washington, D.C., sort of. Just imagine that instead of one Washington, D.C., you have multiple of those, which are federal districts, and it's complex. They have, like, various tiers of states, basically, right? And a few of them have governors and stuff like that, but um, they don't come in that often, and they basically rubber-stamp Putin's decisions, such as in this week he basically signed into law the bill that allowed him to basically be re-elected once again with the new constitution up to 2036. I personally don't believe he'll last that long, but that's just my opinion here. However, there is this small secretive council of national safety, where only uh, Putin's select few people go on to, and there's Dmitry Medvedev on this, and there's Shoigu, the defense minister, and kind of the army representative, and there's Rosguardia representatives. You would expect that, right? But these people come together on a weekly basis, much, much more often than uh, Gosduma or uh, Council of the Federation come together, and they have their meetings. That's the spot where all the Putin's bodies and his ex-colleagues come together too, and well, a lot of political analysts which look at the Russian modus operandi, their state of functioning, look at this small kind of inner council meeting. You know, it's it's kind of like uh, in Game of Thrones, there was this little council. It, it's kind of like that. Out of those 20 people there, 13 of them have ties to the military, while only three have ever been elected anywhere. It's a weird little clique of well, most known oligarchs and whatever, and they craft their decisions, and they're the the body that is believed to be the consultative body of Putin, or by other circles, Putin is the face of this body, because this council in general is considered to be the the oligarchical clique that runs the whole show, right? Now, stemming from that fact that basically all of the Putin's associates are in the military or in other Shiloviki power structure kind of makes sense that he would, you know, use the tools at his disposal to his own benefit. 
And if you've listened to my Ryazan Sugar episode about 1999 of the Second Chechen War, and, uh, well, other things that Putin has done, all these wars, he's left uh, most of the Western side of the whole geopolitical issue surprised by his actions. Because Putin likes to do the unexpected. And whenever his internal struggles happen, you know, whenever something bad happens inside of Russia, they have a nice little tradition there to go on a short, victorious war. I mean, Nikki II, you know, my favorite czar, the one who lost it to the Bolsheviks, he tried to do the same thing, after all, in the Russo-Japanese War in 1905. And before him, Russians in general have often tried to prop up their own internal image with various wars. And for Putin, as far as we are concerned, besides the wars that they stumbled into, such as Syria or Libya or their Mercs in Central African Republic, we can look at serious wars that Putin has started, which is, when he needed to get elected in the first place, he basically manufactured acts of terrorism with help of these Siloviki, these state actors of police force, right? And started the Second Chechen War. Then in 2008, just after Medvedev's turn and everything, and after he himself needed to get this re-election done and have mass popularity, he invaded Georgia with Abkhazia and, uh, and North Ossetia, right? And in 2014, after kind of the whole economic thing had started tumbling down, because, well, in the long run, stealing stuff from your own country is quite bad for you, well, that's when Crimea came in and the Donbass thing. And, well, isn't it surprising, really, at this point, because no one expected neither Georgia nor Crimea, and at this point Putin's ratings are at an all-time low once again. He's fallen from an 86% in 2015, because, well, that, that, that's where he got all of the support from through, through state propaganda from the average folk in Russia, because, you know, Crimea has returned into its national harbor and everything. He played it up, and he was winning. And now it's down to 31%. It's still possibly way lower than that, because, you know, it's it's Russia, and statistics and social polls don't really work in authoritarian dictatorship regimes, because people are just afraid to answer honestly, right? But if you look at that, even this percentage of 31%, out of whom I presume about 50% just responded that they like Putin because they are just too afraid to answer otherwise. We've seen what happens when the police get out of hand there, so I, I think the Putin's ratings have gone to an all-time low, and there's Gosdum elections this year, so that would be one of the reasons why Putin would really enjoy a start of a new war here, just to prop up his internal politics. And secondly, he's also put in a position where he literally has nothing to lose because he's under massive sanctions from everywhere, and his other plans have not worked out so well recently. And we have to take into account that, well, yes, even though it would make zero sense for starting a war in modern-day Europe, he's done so many things that don't make sense that you can't really count on that anymore. I mean, no one expected Georgia, and a lot of people were just yelling that Fighting between Ukraine and Russia could never happen, but it did. Putin's propaganda machine, all these fake news media, have always used the thing that, well, as they did in Navalny's poisoning, which I think has been proven beyond doubt that, well, yes, Putin did it. At least he silently confirmed this action, at least. 
all around the kind of pro-Russian media have been screaming that this brings no benefit to Russia. Well, apparently it does, because Putin had no interest in doing that, has been used to cover up murders of Anna Politkovskaya, Alexander Litvinenko, Boris Nemtsov, now the attempt uh, to kill Navalny, even the Skripal case, Skripal, and if you want a proper Russian thing. All of these cases, Russian use of weaponry, uh, the massive corruption scandals, everything, you know, they always use the same... Like, listen to any of my news episodes. Every time Russia screws up or Putin gets blamed for anything, the first thing they back on to is the fact that, oh no, our government couldn't have done this because if they would have done so, then it would be not beneficial to Putin himself. But that's if, if you look at the rational positioning there. But again, Putin's... He used to be a colonel in the KGB? He didn't do that much in these Germany, you know, at his time there. He was a paper pusher. He had his own commanders too, you know? He's a tactician. He's not a strategist. And long-term planning? Looking at things globally? You're missing the priority here. He does not give a damn about anything else except staying in power indefinitely, because that's a matter of life and death. If the regime would change in Russia, do you really think Putin would survive? He would definitely lose everything. Staying in power is the number one priority, and he he's just going to do anything that he needs to stay that way. I don't believe for a moment that, you know, he's a dumb person or anything, but I think that he takes calculated gambles. He gambles on the bluffs of the Western countries, and he loves to do the unexpected. That the fact that we treat him as a calculative person who cares about Russia's future and the welfare of population of Russia and how the sanctions might hurt Russians, yeah, he's proven multiple times that he doesn't care about that at all. I mean, look at Roscosmos and anything. That's just an awful mess of a state and every notable astronomer and, and astrophysicist and people involved with all this studying space thing. Yeah, all of them say that basically Russia's space programs have been all ruined and everything's, everything has been stolen from there, which is a terribly sad story. Putin cares about Putin staying in power and his friends becoming rich, and you can look at Forbes' top 100 people, and I can assure you that at least 30 of them will be Russians tied to Putin in one way or another. And it all kind of, you know, trickles down. It's like anti-Reagan thing. It's trickle-down corruption. I listen to a lot of Russian news stories, and the things that have struck me recently are the stories of people who, you know, they have their dachas, right? And some wealthier people who often are these political analysts that I listen to and watch. And one of them basically stated the story which happened recently where his dacha was robbed, and then he called the cops, and he was on the first floor, and the cops went to look at the second floor, and they stole more stuff from him while the lower floor was doing the protocoling things in the paperwork. They just stole more from him from the second floor. Nothing ever came out of this because he couldn't prove anything. It's irrational. It's stupid. Yet, and, and if you look at this from these smart analysts who sit down there with coffee and, and on uh, United States political shows or European, like, BBC debates, right? With all their kind of gravitas and everything that they have, they would be very, very wise to say that, oh no, a war between Ukraine and Russia is totally impossible because of such and such reasons, and, and Russia is afraid of more sanctions or whatever. 
Yeah, they they try to understand Putin's actions from a rational Western mind perspective. But at the same time, you know, if they believe that Putin is a rational actor and they believe what Putin says, then why don't they believe the fact that Putin says that Russian mindset is totally different from the Western one? Because he stated that, obviously, right? Putin has said that, well, Western values do not impact him or Russian decision-making in any way or form. If you believe Putin to be a rational actor, then you also should believe him when he states openly that he has no belief in Western virtues. He does not believe that democracy is good for Russia, for one. He's also stated that openly. He's no defender of any human rights. He wants to stay in power and to ensure that he and his buddies can get rich. He has zero interest in the welfare of his people. He wants to incite them in a great patriotic surge of massive support for Russia's great victories because appearing as a massive global great power is the most important thing for, well, the image of the country in Russians' heads at this moment. At least that's the image that has been cultivated for about 30 years throughout Russian propaganda. That's the reason why, for example, there are still monarchists in Russia, while there are people there who firmly believe that the Soviet Union should be restored, and they work together with the monarchists. Because, you know, first we're gonna get back all the Soviet Union together, and then we're gonna figure out what can we do with that, right? And that's just so weird. It's kind of alien prospect there that the welfare of the people doesn't bother Putin at all. That's not the measure of greatness in Russia. They're kind of stuck in this point that there's this Russian saying, or if someone's afraid of you, then they respect you. What they don't get is that a lot of people in the West look at Russia like a mentally disabled person with a grenade in their hands. You're afraid what they would do, but it's not like you respect them that much. But knowing that how they act and how they've done things before, that they will never get proper respect, well, knowing that, their only recourse of action is to make sure everyone's afraid of you because you're a crazy person with nukes, right? And that's how they operate on. And seeing all these wars that have happened, yeah, that's weird. Their biggest issue is that even though they've been trying to push these kind of police structures on it, this kind of oppression of protesters and people with more kind of an open mindset who actually want beneficial things for Russia, because I have to repeat myself here, I love Russia, I hate Putin's government. That's the thing. I have friends in Russia, I have a bunch of relatives living in Russia. Just, I wish the best for those people, because we would all benefit so much from a proper democratic government there. The Russian people are amazing. It's just that they're stuck with this, and they can't really change it due to massive propaganda, and people just, you know, after 30 years of being, you know, told that your government's great, and everything's fine with it, and that all the West are trying to kill Russia all the time, and that NATO tanks are going to destroy it all the time, and presenting this image with the other and the enemy, yeah, that kind of kind of gets to you, doesn't it? And the problem is that they have to expand their forces, and they have to do something, even this power structure that they have, it it deteriorates. And that's kind of the funny specialist study that I'm going to tell you after after the break, because we're going to have to get back to why I think that this is plausible. The war, that is. 
Hello there. Thank you for tuning in into another episode of the Eastern Border. We are so happy to announce that this episode is brought to you by our friends at russansov.com. If you're looking to buy new art, don't forget to use the code EASTERNBORDER for a discount on us. Remember, head over to russansov.com and happy shopping! If, however, you want to support our show directly, head over to patreon.com or our website theeasternborder.lv to find out how you can help out. For all things Eastern Border, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Discord. And as always, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate each and every one of you. That's all from me now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. So to explain uh, basically Russia's military strategy and everything, let's draw a little parallel here like I promised you. First of all, last week, something unusual and very interesting happened in Russia. See, in one of the lower districts, I think it was Mitishchi, which is a suburb of Moscow, one of the wealthier suburbs of Moscow, a 65 to 67-year-old male person by Timur Bablov, uh, as far as I remember, yeah, he got involved into a firefight with the cops, three different types of cops. What happened was that this person was involved with the criminal activities of the 90s. He was in a, one of the gangs, and he had a massive gun collection which is very unusual because in Russia the gun laws are way, way stricter than even the EU. You would think that with all of our regulations we would take guns way more seriously than Russia does, but nope, Russia has stricter gun laws than the EU does. But this guy, who's been in the, into a gang before and now he's retired, well, he was retired, now he's dead, a spoiler alert, uh, yeah, apparently he was being very loud and got drunk often and beat up his family members and was basically a nuisance and some of his neighbors kind of noticed that he was getting drunk and waving his guns around on the porch and that he yelled at people and threatened to blow them up 
So that meant he had potentially explosives, so they got scared and they called the cops. And, well, sometimes Russian cops have to do things besides beating up protesters, right? So, they arrived at the scene, and apparently, well, according to reports that they had received from his neighbors, they found out that this guy apparently had some legally acquired guns. Fully automatic ones, like machine guns and stuff. And I'm talking machine guns, not assault rifles. Full-on belt-fed machine guns. And when this happens, you know, he, he'd probably get fined for this. But something went wrong in his head, some screws just didn't cut the right way, and he decided to have a firefight. So the FSB, Modern Analog of KGB, Federal Bureau of Security as they're called now, well, they call in their SWAT team. But that isn't enough, because he takes his own family as hostages and threatens to blow them up with hand grenades. And starts shooting from his machine guns at the SWAT team. So they called in also the FSO, which is the Federal Bureau of Ochranka, or the Guard stuff. And then they also called in the military Spetsnaz. And, well, basically three various, or four according to some reports, but essentially let's take the minimum here. Three Spetsnaz SWAT teams from various services of the Russian Siloviki, or these four structures, uh, basically internal police, security police, or whatever, and the military. Yeah, they spent nine hours fighting with this one man. He released his family after a while, after negotiations, but he still continued to fire on these three, uh, totaling about 35 people, uh, three various Spetsnaz groups, for nine hours. He threw grenades at them. He fired machine guns at them. He fired pistols at them, all the while barricaded in his three-story house on the third floor. And they couldn't do anything for nine hours. Another report, by the way, states that they also had, like, bribed him that he didn't pay his annual bribes because he had bought the very grenades from, you know, their stores, which had been given to them. After nine hours, they decided that, well, screw this and used incendiary grenades to burn his whole house down. And he died in the process. Afterwards, after these nine hours of being unable to take down a single 65-plus-year-old retired mafia guy, they all got awarded medals for their excellent work. Now, this brings up many questions. For example, how did the system allow him to even acquire grenades? What insanity was in his head when he decided to basically use them against cops? And why did it take nine hours and in the end they decided to burn his whole house down? Which is totally dangerous and not a safe thing. Well, and the answer is probably deterioration, because that's the ongoing meme on the Russian internet, the Runet, that... Yeah, those cops are now only useful for beating up protesters, right? But this kind of level of insanity, if you kind of extrapolate it, kind of shows you how the government as a whole is running. How competent every part of it is, really. So that is why I'm kind of worried that all this increase of military activity near Donbass might turn into something real, because, hey, it seems insane. Seems wild. Unbelievable even to some points, right? But knowing the history of what's happened there, solely plausible. Another theory, which one of the people who follow me on Twitter stated that this might as well be a kind of a decoy plan, they might have do something in the Arctic, because there's also a military escalation in the Arctic circles. Because, you know, something needs to happen. And this short, victorious war idea 
it hasn't gone anywhere. The problem is, I think that Putin's government really thinks that they need to do some military activity because that's what their propaganda is built upon. And even though it seems dumb, yeah, they blame the Ukrainians for escalation here, but on their official TV channels and with their well-known propaganda news, they have people who are the talk show hosts who state that, well, if this fact is true that Russia is preparing to fight against Ukraine and conquer everything to Kiev to get uh, Donbass to join Novorossiya, this new Russia, new Russian world order, then I'm happy about it. If it isn't true, then I'm extremely sad, because Russia needs to reconquer its lost territory. The propaganda machine is turned on into full-scale support our men, we need a victorious war now mode. And that makes me scared, because apparently, apparently, imagine even the most warmongering of all the European or American, and I'm talking about the United States and Canada and Mexico and anywhere else in the world, if someone in the news would blatantly state that we need to wage war against those other people who do things, yeah, they'd be fired instantly. Could you even imagine any other country in the world, even China, just openly in their news channel stating that we need to destroy these people? That's North Korea level stuff. And this whole war machine propaganda, this whole war attitude, so deep and it's so weird that it's crazy. And most of you have probably who listened to my show that you know about world politics and you know about the tragedy in Myanmar where the military had their coup and in the protests against this coup and the whole new military government, there have been many dead people who are protesters, about 500 at this point, if I'm not mistaken, some 450 to 550 people at the moment of the recording. Just after the coup, as they were literally killing peaceful protesters in the streets, they had this whole Myanmar army day. And everyone else, basically, from all over the world, just decided to ignore this because, yeah, it's not cool to kill your own citizens, right? Except Russia, which sent their military attaché and their foreign minister there to um, kind of support the new government, and they called them their most worthy allies. That kind of shows that they don't care about publicity at all on the outside of Russia. They care about only their internal politics, because what other government would openly call their most trustworthy ally and a huge friend another government who's literally murdering their own citizens on the streets no reaction there, right? Active support for such violent things. At this point, I, I, I want to believe that, you know, Putin's not dumb and he will make some right choices and he'll do only calculated stuff. But again, after 2008 and 2014, we can't know that. We, we can't know that. And this is the scary part. It's kind of like kind of like foreign politics on steroids with aliens involved and maybe Duke Nukem from the video game series, just going out and killing alien pigs or something. It's so bizarre and so weird that I'm at a loss here. A lot of people are just choosing to ignore this, and I think that won't happen because at this point, maybe, you know, I don't remember exactly who said this, but I remember this quote from a Holocaust survivor who spoke about Nazi Germany, and she stated that, I remember it was a she, I really honestly am sorry, I don't remember the name here. I remember that it was a she, and she said, if someone's telling you that they will kill you, then believe them. Because no one thought that the Nazis could do what they did, right? And no one believed that Russia would invade their own kind of friendly countries, right? 
but it happened. So if Putin is saying through propaganda channels that he's about to invade, and if Putin is proclaiming that the Ukrainians deserve to lose this war and need to rejoin with Russia, maybe we should start believing that. And not just doing the usual, oh, well, that could never happen thing. Because this isn't Western politics. And Putin's not dumb. He knows how Western politicians work and how all this happens and the deep concern about the ongoing situation. If that's the only thing that the West can do in this case, then Putin wins by default because, well, he's done that before. Started two wars, invaded other countries, nothing happened to him. Well, sanctions, yeah, sure, why not? He's still super rich anyway because he has his own, like, you know, oil deals and everything. This needs to be taken more seriously. And I'll be following this as the situation develops, of course, but yeah, like I said, I give it 25 to 30% chance of escalating because might as well. I still believe that maybe some rational minds will take over, but every day that passes and the more I learn about all of this mess, the more I believe that this might sadly turn into something more. And this has been a depressing episode to make, like I told you, but what can I do? In this situation, I believe that it's my duty to keep you informed and make you think about all this mess a bit more. Well, how how the people in the West should react if such a war would break out. And that's about it for today. Next time, we'll get back to the historical stuff. I just thought that this whole possible war scenario needs to have a look at. Please follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. If you want to, please become our supporter on Patreon, or just click the donate button in our webpage, theeasternborder.lv, and don't forget to, you know, go to rusensov.com and use Eastern at checkout for all your Soviet swag needs. Keep in touch, send me emails, I try to answer all of them. I definitely read all of them, but I can't really answer to all of them often. And, uh, well, Patreon messages, they also sometimes just don't work, so might be difficult, but I respond to everyone who writes to me on Twitter or on Facebook. And remember, even in the darkest of times and even in the scariest of times, happiness is mandatory. Das Vidanya, Tavarishi. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the Western Border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The eastern border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.